What happens when oil companies refuse to find any more oil? All that and more on this Energy and Materials edition of Industry Focus. Greetings, fools. Sean O'Reilly here at Fool Headquarters in Alexandria, Virginia. It is Thursday, March 31st, 2016, and joining me in studio is the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Tyler Crow. What's Just up, dude? Just the two of us. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, I'm, gonna be, I'm, gonna, I'm going to have that stuck in my head all day, thanks eh, to you. Oh, well. Good luck um, to you. It's thanks a good to song you and to have in your head. I, mean, I you could guess, have a lot worse. But uh, it is the fault of you and Mr. Muckerman, who is, of course, not joining us. Because what did he... Some, some work some training Some Motley Fool corporate training is fine. We don't need you, Muckerman. Um, please come back to us. Please come back. <laughs> uh, do you think he'll listen to the show? I don't know. Probably. Probably. On his way home. Um, so, uh, lots of fun energy news, as always. Um, we got a few, uh, uh, right off the bat here. Um, I usually, you know, kind of tease the last story, you know, yeah, I, you yeah. know, keep everybody going and everything, but, uh, we kind of got to talk about this cause it's, it's, it's a big deal. I mean, you'll explain why in a minute, but, um, bottom line, the world's oil companies, particularly the majors only re- replaced last year, 75% of their reserves. And, um, I mean, how long has it been since that happened it's, ever? Like it's been like a decade. I think the last yeah. time, um, I was, it was a, a post in the Wall Street Journal basically talking about companies not replacing their reserves at a 100% clip. And I think the last time that ExxonMobil, all of the companies all at once, I think it was sometime like 2004, 2005. So it's been close to a decade. Was or this a little more than a decade since it last happened? Did they just say the entire energy industry, or did they take the top 20 firms and say um, 75%? Did not of them? specify, but I think the kind of the the overall discussion was more on the big. Players who spend all the money doing it, you know, the Royal right. Dutch Shells, the Exxon Mobiles, the Chevrons of the world. Uh, you know, Exxon Mobil replaced about somewhere between 67 to 75 percent of their reserves last year. Uh, Royal Dutch Shell, right around 75 percent. And you know, the truth is, is they're just not. It, you, it kind of a combination of it's getting a little harder to find very large reserve replacements and. You know, a little bit of less exploration spending here and there is going to tend to do that. Well, and it's not like they have an incentive to with oil at thirty or forty dollars a barrel. So, do you think, you know, obviously long term, this is a trend that uh, can't remain if we're going to keep using oil. Um, is this something that will reverse itself this year? What were these oil companies thinking when they cut these budgets so much that they weren't even replacing their own reserves? They're like, we'll just make up for it and then some. Well, they were cutting their reserve. They were cutting their exploration budget this month because they wanted to keep the lights on. I right. mean, if you look at cash flows for these companies and their ability to, you know, pay their dividends, which is kind of the primary reason why somebody's going to invest in a big oil company anyways is stability and a dividend. You know, you're not buying them for double, triple stock price growth sort of thing. Right. And so, you know, when you're not spending any money on exploration, it's just not going to happen. And a, a lot of these guys have the cushion to do it. If you look at like their five, 10 year reserve replacement rates, it's 15, 20% greater than, you know, what they produced. So they've been kind of building up a, a little bit of cushion in the event that something like this happens. I mean, you look at ExxonMobil, they have proved reserves of more than 20 billion barrels. And then uh, what they call their resource base, which is stuff that they're evaluating and has been discovered in years prior and they think they can get, is up to 90 billion barrels, which is, you know, 
something on the Absurd range of, amount, something a range yeah. of 40 to 50 years of production at today's constant rates. So, you know, it's not like the alarms should be going off in everybody's heads, "Oh my god, this is, you know, an absolute crisis." It's, you know, it's a one-year thing. If you look at over a 5-year reserve replacement rate, they're they're still above 100%. And you know, sometimes these bad years are going to happen. And chances are that 2016 is going to be another really bad year because they're not spending any money on it. I mean, this reminded me, uh, you were talking about how these companies just wanted to keep the lights on. And I was reminded how even last October, when you and I went to Houston to talk to a few energy companies, um, we definitely got that impression. People were cutting office expenses. They weren't buying water bottles. I mean, it was definitely like yeah. <laughs> every single time that they could cut a little bit of an expense here, a little bit of an expense there, you know, it was very prominent. And I mean, like you said, when we were talking with the oil supply and service providers, you know, like even those uh, guys that don't just, necessarily even you know, have reserves or oil, yeah. Distribution now and National Oil of Arco, they just kept talking about you know all the phone calls they kept getting was. Hey, can we get this for less? And it was all about pricing, and everybody was, you know, trying to get that little extra dime out, right. or you know, little extra cut, so they could make that dollar go a little. So bit these longer. oil companies, I was, I'm very, very sorry that I missed the National Oil Well Varco interview. I had to get back here, eh. but so people were literally like calling them, being like, "Hey, can you give us five percent off on this?" Yeah, they, pipe? I mean, I mean, not specifically that way. That was kind of the you right. know the way he presented it, but it was like a, we're having discussions with our suppliers or our customers on how we can reduce costs, and you know. And there would also be the back and forth. It's like, well, you can reduce costs by spending less on this, or here's a technology where you can get better well economics. And but it's, know, it's going to cost of, more. To yeah, pick. It's, yeah, it's like a sort of trying to play that game of what's going to be the most, not just the lowest cost, but the most economical. Got it. Um, does this low replacement rate and just lack of investment have anything to do with uh, the recent rumors that Exxon is looking to bid on? Uh, for lack of a better term, some huge reserves. It's certainly part of it. I mean, it, when you're looking at how expensive it is to explore for new oil, especially for a big oil company who has to go, you know, hunting with they have to go hunting with an elephant right. gun versus a slingshot if they want to replace the reserves. They're not like a, you know, a, a Whiting Petroleum or somebody like that who's just trying to replace 150 160,000 barrels per day. We're talking about a company that needs to replace 4.1 million barrels per day. And so when you have when you need to move the needle ma- ma- that much, you need big big mm-hmm. exploration expenses and which normally means going offshore and going to places where we haven't really found oil yet and that's going to cost a lot of money. At the same time, there is an opportunity here with other companies that are struggling for cash that need a little bit of help and have some lucrative assets, but no way of developing them. And this is the case right now where ExxonMobil's looking at some assets from the Italian integrated oil company, Any Spa. And they're, um, they have some very attractive assets off the coast of Mozambique that's looking in the trillions and trillions of cubic feet of natural gas. It's Probably one of the largest finds of natural gas that we've had in the past, you know, five ten years. It they're also looking at some of their very uh, lucrative assets in uh, North Africa, such as Egypt and things like that. Was it? Was it? You said it's any any any. Yeah. Was it them that I read that found a huge gas uh, field in the Mediterranean off the coast of Israel? Off of 
No, that's uh, they found a large one off of Egypt. Okay, it's yeah, kind yeah. of in the same Cat- area. Well, yeah, in the whole. I'm sorry, uh, it's kind of catty corner there right. between. Yeah, so yeah. there are some large gas fields off of Israel on Noble Energy. Okay, uh, for the yeah. U.S., they're on the Israel side, and basically because they're the only company uh, in the U.S. that doesn't have any ties to the Middle East, so they can operate right. with Israel. Uh, versus everyone else has kind of been dabbling on the Egyptian side of the border, uh, or you know territorial right. boundary on that offshore area, and they're finding some very large natural gas deposits. Cool. All right. So, um, how Tyler, how long have we been talking on this show about um, enough oil that, carnage? Enough that I'm guessing that listeners are really, really starting tired to, get, of it. to get tired of it. Um, okay, so before we move on, uh, once again, listeners, we're very sorry. <laughs> we have to keep talking <laughs> we about We have it. to. We don't have a choice. Um, we've been saying a while how you know, we're not, we're fools. We're not macro people. We don't make macro calls, but we know economics and we know that current oil prices, it is not incentivizing anybody to find more oil, which relates to our first story today. But I mean, so, something's going to have to happen to change the current status quo. Um, recently, Bloomberg put out an article that, in so many words, basically said that when the market rebounds, it could rebound big. Why did they say that? Well, you have. When we look, we always talk about supply and demand. It's kind of the the overarching theory when we talk about oil is you know how too much or not enough supply. And the theory is is that there is massive underinvestment in in the oil and gas industry right now to maintain current production levels. There, you know, when it you have the natural decline of oil. Uh, reservoirs wherever you go. It can be very high in places like shale, where it's up to 60-70% annually, or it can be very low. It can be, you know, three, I think, on average, globally, uh, natural decline rates of oil reserves without any, like, maintenance or repair mm-hmm. or trying to, you know, bump the numbers. It's about 9%. So, Which the world currently produces, stop me, 93, 94. Right. Million barrels. So, a day. You're so looking, if everybody stopped spending this year, you're it look, would drop to the high 80s next year. Right. I mean, stop it. Yeah. Even less. I mean, you're looking at basically any, on any given year, we have to find and replace somewhere in the range of five to seven million barrels per day of just, just wells drying keep, up, just yeah. to kind of keep pace. And at the current investment rate, we're under investing in that level. We have. We're not. If you look at the amount that's being spent on exploration, the amount that's being spent on production and development, not only are we seeing a production decline, but if you kind of use that gauge of the underinvestment all the way across the value chain, we're looking at several years of underinvestment that could lead to production declines. So, if that were to happen, you know, will once those kind of the overhang of oil starts to clear the inventories, the excess production today, bringing Iran back into the fold, and all of these things that people have been terrified about in the market of, oh, it's going to kill oil prices and bring it down to $10 a barrel. Once all of those things are reintegrated and kind of renormalized and brought into the fold, then we're going to be looking at the situation and say, holy crap, we haven't been spending enough in this industry, and we're going to be on a, a shorter our production is going to look a little low. Supply is going to look short, and then obviously prices follow that, and then we start to get the natural cycle of things recycling well, itself. And not only that, but we all know that markets tend to overshoot, and they probably overshot to the downside. And in order to get more oil on the market, 
if and when we find ourselves short of supply, it's it just doesn't seem inconceivable to me that I don't know speculators on the New on the New York Mercantile Exchange floor buying all these futures and stuff would overshoot a little. So well. And again, one of the things that's always been an issue for a long-term investor in this space is being able to kind of sift out the noise when it comes to these sort of things. You know, you're looking at futures trading six to twelve months, and everybody tries to make these projections years out in advance. When those things, when you look at, but when you look at the what you call the forward curve of oil, it's never right. Right. There's way too many factors that go into the daily price of oil. Really there's there's thousands of of factors and on any given day those can change and normally what happens with that is that you can throw you take that forward curve and light it on fire and start again right. tomorrow. And we want uh, really quick before we wrap up this section um uh, one of the uh, executives we met when you're we in Houston, and I keep mentioning that trip to show for some reason, was they had a chart of you know the four futures curves at various points in oil history for the last ten or fifteen years, and it was hilarious and laughable how, and how wrong, wrong it was. It was, yeah, it was staggering. The 2008 forward curve said that oil was going to be at 220 dollars a barrel today. Then the financial crisis, like it's just you know, yeah. So. Hilarious. Cool. Well, before we move on, I wanted to point our listeners that April is Financial Literacy Month, and in that spirit, we are giving away 10 books to 10 lucky winners. These books include favorite financial picks from David Gardner and Morgan Housel and many more. To enter to win, just go to podcast.fool.com and click on the yellow Super Podcast link at the top of the page. Once again, that is podcast.fool.com. All right, so Tyler, um, I was a little nervous when I first saw this. It's like, oh gosh, a quiz. I oh man, pop quiz 30. time, everybody. Get out I your turned, pencils. I turned. I just turned thirty. I thought I was done with this eight years ago. Um, I'm gonna give you all the like. This is gonna be the re- renovation or the resurrection of like those all those high school nightmares where you're uh-huh. like, you're not stu- you have a quiz and you didn't study for it, and all yeah. of a sudden you're like, why am I naked at school and taking a quiz? Everybody's pointing and laughing at yeah. me and. Yeah. Um, all right. So I guess I I'm willing to take a little bit of a shellacking sure. if you want to ask. So me what questions. we're gonna do here is um, I, I kind of spent a, a day parousing around the uh, U.S. EIA website. It's the Energy Information Administration EIA.gov. Anybody that's interested in energy should probably just kind of parouse around it because it's an amazing database of information. It tells you a lot about trends and prices and kind of where we've come from, where we may be going in the world of energy. And it's a really kind of cool and interesting thing that anybody who's invested in or interested in energy should certainly check out. So I kind of built, I found some really interesting uh, little tidbits of information, kind of trivia, did you know sort of things that we could uh, play with. And I thought we'll be sure to put up on the video version of this the, the more you know. Yeah, exactly. Above my head, anyway. and I, I thought it would be interesting to kind of to throw them out there as as something that people might be interested in, maybe even inspire people to go check out this website. Because is it really cool? So, um, all right. So, first question, hit me. All right, what energy source uh, was deployed the most in 2015 for electric power generation? Um, all right. So this is the one question that I kind of cheated because I saw the the yeah. the source that you sent. Um, and for our listeners, I'll just explain. What he wants me to say is natural gas because it's so cheap and all these coal plants are switching over. But the answer is it was wind power. I was honestly shocked, and that's why I'm sure you picked this question. Um, what were the numbers? Uh, let me 
pull them up right it here. It was, I mean, it was like so in, an extra 3,000. In 2015, whatever. we deployed about eight, five, four. We probably we deployed about 20 gigawatts of new power mm-hmm. um, across the United States. Maybe give or take that. I'm just kind of adding in my head right here. Uh, of that, 8.1 of them was wind power. Wow. Um, according to the EIA, about 41% of all new capacity installations to the grid uh, were was 41% of them were wind. So, wow. No, um, I was, and all that was in Iowa. And um. it was, it, and that was actually a complete reversal because had this been 2014, you would have been right because in 2014, uh, natural gas was you know, far and away the winner with about 44% of all installations, while wind only took in about 26. It was actually even yeah. behind solar in 2014. But uh, 2015, wind was the dominant force yet again. Cool. Okay. All right. What do we got next? Next question. Name the top three states in terms of most renewable power added in 2015. All right. Iowa, California, Texas. You got two out of the three right. Uh, not bad. I feel pretty um, good. And the order was off. Okay. Well, sorry. So, uh, the largest uh, installer of renewable energy in 2015 was the great state of Texas with a uh, little bit of about three, three and a half gigawatts of wind was, power added. I was about to say that. Was it was pretty much all wind power. There was a little bit of solar. Um, it was far and away the largest um, in terms of total generation capacity added. They added about five gigawatts of new power uh, in 2015. Do you think, I mean, Texas is basically a huge desert in parts. What I have a lot. I bet there's a lot of people in Texas right now that have just shut you down. I'm sorry, everybody, but I've I've been to Dallas in the summer, and it's for quite this hot, Ohio quite boy, it was really well. You know what? I'll just say I take the desert thing back. It's really sunny there. How's that? Yeah. Um, at what point do you think they'll start throwing a few more solar panels up? Um, I mean, it's. Um, the thing is, is that wind is such a dominant force for them, and it's such a lucrative one in the sense mm-hmm. where. In terms of total wind, like the potential for wind, basically the average wind speeds and you know prominence of how many wind. Plus, it doesn't stop at night, so there's that. So wind has just been a a better solution for them than solar power. Cool. Okay. And then second place, California, pretty much all of it uh, was solar power with a little bit of wind, just a and with a Mm -hmm. hint of natural gas to toss it in there. And then the third largest renewable power installer was Oklahoma and like Texas it was pretty much all wind Got power. Got it. Okay. I you know I I was going to miss Oklahoma no matter what cuz my second guess in place of Iowa would Iowa would have been Nevada. I basically any pla- thing, basically yeah. any plain state right now is installing wind power left Got and it. right. So, cool. Okay. Uh third question. Name the five states with the highest growth rates in solar capacity added this year. And, oh, and this isn't total amount. This is a percentage growth. Okay. Um, That's a, this is going to be a hard one. This is very difficult. It's going to be random weird things, too. Uh, Massachusetts. You smiled, so I think I'm right. Um, I am going to throw out California. Um, oh, boy. Connecticut. Texas. I know it's not Florida, which is sad. And, oh, I'm at four. Yep, one more. North Carolina. <laughs> you went 0 for 5. Oh, man. Oh, well. You were close, though. I mean, you were on the right idea with going with New England and a yeah. little bit of the Southeast. But the number one state was Nevada. 
Oh, okay, fine. They grew by 164% from about... Cool. Uh, second place was New Hampshire, oh, come my on. home state. I they swear. grew by 110%. Uh, third place, Utah, they grew by 94%. Uh, fourth place, South Carolina with 84%. And thir- uh, fifth is Vermont with 79%. I was, uh, I was you close. Were, you were dabbling in the New I England was, area. You I, just got the wrong ones. How was I supposed to pick? I was, yeah, anyway. Next ones. What was the last year that coal power was the most deployed power source? 2003. Oh man, you got to go way further back. Really? That. Oh. Oh wait, let's, no, the I last year that coal power was the most de- so the most used to generate no, power for no, the grid. No, most like of all the new additions, uh, new capacity additions in the United States, coal was the most dominant one versus In like, terms of growth? Yeah, in terms of capa- capacity added. 1972. A little closer. 1981. Okay. In 1981 so. was the last year that coal like power capacity added mm. in the United States, the highest percentage was coal. Got it. Okay. Cool. So it's been quite a while. It is, uh, yeah. And if all projects are go according to schedule in 2016, basically, you know, if we everything that's kind of planned and under construction right now lays in place, what will be the most deployed energy source in 2016? Solar. Yes. Yes. I finally got one. Solar. And actually, follow-up question. How much utility-scale solar is expected to grow in 2016 compared to 2015? And I'll give you some options. Oh, boy. Is it finally, a, a multiple-choice question. Is it A, 35%, B, 110%, C, 250%, or D, 325%? I'm going to guess B, 110. Nope. Darn it. It's D, 325%. No way. No way. So You're good with the trick questions. Kudos. Oh, yeah. So in 2015, uh, we added about 2.9 gigawatts of utility-scale photovoltaic uh, solar power. In 2016, if all of the projects that we have going on come online in 2016, we are going to add 9.5. And that is utility only. That does not include That's any. Not that does include any residential anything. rooftop, wow. anything like that. So does that include? Um, you're saying just utility. Does that include? I mean, it's not a, a big deal, but that does that include rooftop stuff on uh, Whole Foods? Nope, nothing. Nope. Okay. So that uh, they're looking at just utility scale only, basically being that built is for power plants and by power pl- or utilities wow. and things like that. So uh, that actually leads us nicely into this uh, last little story that we need well, to talk about. I think we need to give you a grade. How many did you get right? Maybe one. The one that you knew I, the I answer think I to got already. A, I, I think I got a D minus. <laughs> I guessed uh, the solar growth this year. Oh, that's true. Okay, yeah. so two out of five. Um, plus, I don't know. I was, uh, there's 50 states. You had to give me that. I that was, was a tough. I one. was at least. Well, I know Massachusetts has actually been doing a lot with solar, just from my readings and editing and stuff. So anyway, um, but we got to talk about uh, Sun Edison before we head out of here. Um, talk now, about how wonderful solar is growing, and we'll talk about the one company that seems to be going bankrupt. When it's it comes weird. To solar. Yeah, I mean, what's the stock at? Forty cents now. Uh, yeah. It's somewhere around fifty to forty, fifty cents. Um, you compare them to being the Icarus of the solar industry, of course, alluding to the Greek myth about the kid that you know flew had the too wax close to wings, the sun. Flew close, too close to the sun, even though he was flying and melted the wings, and down he went. Um, why do you make that analogy? Well, if you look at the solar industry, um, and this happens with a lot of new technologies. You have something new and wonderful. Well, it's the bubble and, boom, right? You know. And 
it's it's so easy to get excited about the potential for it you know the disruption the ability to grow into this multi-trillion dollar market and one of the things that gets everybody gets caught up when it comes to things like this is growth rates and how spectacular they look and so when you have a company that comes in like a Sol, a Sun Edison that talks about how much they're going to grow and how quickly and you can see like the growth trajectory of revenue growth and things like that and all these new projects they're they're coming online and how much they're spending on new projects and it just looks very tempting the only problem is is that when especially in a in an industry like electricity it's not a fast growing industry in general. I mean, we only grow electricity consumption by 1%. It involves population growth, more and, or less. Yeah. yeah. And we have to, all we're basically doing is replacing old capacity and with a little bit added new. So you're not, you can't, it's not like an iPhone where everybody's just going to pick it up and go. It's it's basically trying to compete with an existing industry. And the, so when you have a company like Sun Edison that grows this fantastically and it's taking on large amounts of debt and if you, you kind of look at the situation of how they had it, it wasn't exactly the most well managed you know they're looking at doing all these massive spin-offs because they're just trying to inhale capital as fast as they can to grow and the only problem is, is there was never any cash flows or any growth of the bottom line to support that now you know you contrast that with the companies that have been successful in the solar industry over the past couple of years you look at first solar you look at sunpower they haven't chased the rainbows in the industry they've you know they've set pretty modest growth targets we're going to grow at this rate we're going to build great panels we're going to, and we're not going to get caught up trying to build out with huge amount of debts we're going to use kind of live, try to live within our cash flows and they've done a much better job at maintaining that and being a better long-term investment versus somebody like Sun Edison who got everybody a little too excited that happens. All right. Well, thanks for your thoughts, Tyler. We'll see you mm -hmm. next week. And if you're a loyal listener and have questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Just email us at industryfocus at fool.com. Again, that is industryfocus at fool.com. And as always, people in this program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against those stocks. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear in this program. For Tyler Crow, I, and I am Sean Riley. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. <laughs>